Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Javane Dargan, who is the founder and starter of the new comic book publisher, Animated Concepts. It's a real treat to have him on because we both have a shared love of comic books that I rarely get to talk about with my friends because they think I'm a big goofball. But it's going to be a lot of fun to hear about sort of Javane's introduction to the space and what he's up to with his new company. Javane, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me on, Frazier. And hello to everybody out there in the Wealth Actually land. I'm looking forward to having this conversation, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think so, too. So let's start with this. Where did the love of comics come from? You're from Chicago, and where did you first get an introduction to some of your favorite characters? And for some of us, we had our favorite comic book stores. How did you get involved? So for me, I'm originally from New York. So I'm originally from the Bronx, New York. So I consider myself a relatively recent transplant in Chicago. Been here about 12 years now. Came out here to get married to my wife, Tara, whom I met when I was at uh, Columbia University many, many years ago. But my love from comics actually came from animation first. I was a big animation fan. I really, in my younger years, really had no idea where comic books were. So really, my thing was I was really big into the Hanna-Barbera and Filmation cartoons. And I loved all the superhero stuff like Aquaman, Adam Ant, Teen Titans, Frankenstein Jr. And the big one for me was Super Friends. So it was when I my grandmother's home, my cousin had a trunk full of comic books. So whenever I went to a house, whether my cousin was there or not, or whether he liked it or not, I always found my way into his room and popped open the trunk and read the books were in there. So occasionally he would give me one to take home. And even then, I didn't necessarily pull them. I read them, cut them out. Like, I don't know if it was old color form sets where you would take little plastic pieces and play with them like on the pre-designed background. I would cut them out and kind of tell stories using those characters from the books. So eventually, I'd walk into a newsstand one day. <laughs> and that's when I saw a copy of Justice League of America, Super Friends cartoon. But apparently they sell this someplace. They sell these on this thing called a newsstand and they come out every month. And that's when I got hooked on comic books. So um, at that point, a lot of my comic book buying was basically at newsstands in my neighborhood. And then I discovered my first comic book shop, which was Fordham Comics, which was about 30 minutes north of where I lived. And that's when I realized the whole direct market, direct comic book shop thing, your local comic book shop. And then when I was in New York, I would go, I would shop there. Forbidden Planet was a big one in New York, in comics. St. Mark's Comics, which was the one that I considered kind of like the 24-hour one. And that was basically my introduction into Jim Hanley's universe. I cannot forget Jim Hanley's universe. Those were my introductions to comic books in that sense. And then a relatively new one that came on the scene before I ended up in Chicago with Midtown Comics, which, as people are aware of now, is one of now the three major distributors. <laughs> it went from one down to three, or up to three. <laughs> yeah, up to three. Probably actually four at this point if you count Penguin. And then when I got to Chicago, of course, it was a little bit different. Now, Chicago, the big one is Graham Crackers. But I don't really do Graham Crackers because, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, they're basically downtown. And if you're living basically outside of downtown Chicago, it's a little bit hard to get down there on a regular basis to do comic shopping. So in recent years, my favorite comic shop is First Aid Comics, which for those of you here in Chicago, 
It's located at 1617 East 55th Street. It's in Hyde Park. And they were closer to me in terms of where I was living in Chicago at the time on the South Side. Other than that, if I wanted to get comics, I would have to go all the way down to downtown to Grand Crackers. Or I have to go out to another shop, which I also really enjoy. That's Alternate Reality, which is out at 3149 West 115th Street. Alternate Reality, which is kind of like the Walmart of comics. It's like if you walk in, it's like a showroom. That dude's got racks and racks and racks of comics and collectibles and everything else. So basically, my little circle of comic stores here in Chicago, basically First Aid, where they have a location in Hyde Park. They have another one on um, Taylor Street. Challengers Comics and Conversation, which is a store that I usually go with my daughters. I take them to to get their graphic novels when they want to buy them. And that's located up on, I think it's 1845 Northwestern. Challenges Comics and Conversation is more like, like a Barnes and Noble feel to it, if you will. And then there's Dark Tower Comics and Collectibles, which that's my um, dollar back section store. They got the best back issues in the city. And all of the buck, you can find stuff going back to like the 1980s up until the modern day comics. So they're really great stores. So those are basically first day challenges, Dark Tower, Alternate Reality. Those are my four go-tos in Chicago. But yeah, that's how I found it. It's a love of animation that turned into a love of comics, realizing that I could get these adventures on a regular basis and they weren't reruns. So that was good. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that's really fun to me is in how I discovered it. Again, same as you. Well, I guess my first huge introduction was through the Marvel Comics 1960s animated cartoons, The Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby, the live action that I was rampaging around the house pretending I was the Hulk and driving my parents crazy. And then that bled into where these stories coming from. And as you grow up and go to these stores, a lot of times the stores really reflect the personalities of their owners. And so there's a weird, not weird. It's kind of a cool thing where you're learning through the prism of somebody's opinion of what's good or what's not good. Were there any personalities around that that you remember that were instructive? Well, it's funny because the first time I walked into was Fordham Comics. It was run by basically a younger Asian guy. And he didn't really have much opinion about anything. He was just a really cool cat, but I never really spent a lot of time talking to him. It was only when I was up there, I went away to high school at Deerfield, which we both have in common. So there was a comic book store there in town. I don't remember the guy's name, but I used to hang out there every Friday night. So that was instructive in terms of I would hang out there every Friday night. He would let me read my books. We would talk about what was good and what wasn't. And he was the one who really got me to understand that while a lot of it is about art, a lot of comics was collaborative. You're enjoying these stories, but it's like if the writer isn't really jiving with the penciler, the penciler style doesn't really mesh with the anchor, you're going to get a totally different result each time. So it was something where he just kind of clued me into more the collaboration that's involved in comics. I think a lot of times people come into comics, they go, well, it's all about the art, and that's it. And if the art's not any good, then none of it's any good. And I think that is true to a certain extent. That is definitely the key selling point of a comic. But I think when you start to learn a little bit more about what an anchor brings to it, because really an anchor really does determine the style of the book, because that's the final product that you're seeing. A colorist brings a certain tone and a tonality to the book visually that if you don't have really good colorists, it makes a huge difference. And then the writer, basically where a lot of the ideas can be coming from at some point. So he was a guy that was more open-minded. And it's funny, he asked me about that, what was more instructive, because actually what was more instructive was I was in my art class at Deerfield, and a bunch of us were in the comics in that class. And I don't remember his last name, but one of the students, Jeff, 
I think I was a senior at the time. He may have been a junior or a sophomore. And I made the comment that indie comics basically suck. <laughs> and he came right back at me and was like, yo, you know what you're talking about? This stuff that's in the indie comics is just as good as Marvel and DC because I was more of a Marvel and DC head at that point. So I was like kind of, okay. So I was like, you know what? I've actually never read an indie comic before. So I kind of don't know what I'm talking about. So I said, let me try one out. I went in that Friday the hangout store and that's when the guy gave me Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and after that it was off to the <laughs> it was off to the races but I realized the world by that much more that was a good time to get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too because back in the late 80s early 90s you caught that wave in time you got a nice little asset there that's right it was right before it was literally the first comic I picked up which I think it, it must have been about six or seven it had the ads for the toys in the back of the book already. So it was like right before it blew up. So exactly. It's like, now you try to get some of those bad boys. And it's oh, a grip, luck. as they say. <laughs> You're parting with a big chunk of change for that. And the crazy part was their publisher, they were in Northampton, Mass. So they were exactly. right there. So it was a strange way to be near to ground zero, even if we didn't really know about it at the time. Yeah. And if I wasn't in Massachusetts and I hadn't had that conversation with Jeff, whatever, it's, it'd probably been about a good two years. I probably just been introduced to it through the, either the cartoon series or the movies. Because, yeah, you're right. It was like they weren't necessarily nationwide at that point. Like, I definitely couldn't find that book easily in New York when I would go back home, come back from Deerfield. Yeah, you're right. It was a real chance encounter, if you will. So that's why Turtles always has a special place in my heart. Cool. So... As you started finding different books and so on, what were the characters that you were drawn to and who did you really groove on? For me, who I really grooved on, I would say, is definitely Robin. So Robin the Boy Wonder is one of my favorite characters. And that definitely comes more from the TV side of things. I was a big fan of the Adam West series. And then really what it was when I started getting into collecting comics, which was New Teen Titans number seven. I really liked that interpretation of the Robin character by Marl Wolfman and George Perez. He was like more like an older teen at that point, and he was leading the team. But um, Robin I always liked because he's the apprentice to the Dark Knight. It's like it's Batman. It's just like one of the best heroes in the world. And he always represented to me kind of like the future. Robin was this good as a kid alongside Batman. That means he was going to be tearing it up <laughs> once he got older and kind of came into his own. So, and it was also the reason why I always liked sidekicks. Most comic book creators hate sidekicks. They despise sidekicks. The fact that the kid, but for me, I always thought the sidekick was the coolest kind of hero to be because you're learning at the feet of the master. And then once it's your turn, is you're going to know everything he does and be doing your own thing too. So Robin was always a big one. I'm going to probably stay in the cartoon realm for at least the first couple of years because Dungeons and Dragons cartoon was another one. Those, again, it was like these teen heroes kids basically going out to the world as adults and just like having these skills that allowed them to change the world, if you will. So I was big on Dungeons and Dragons. Iceman was a big character of mine because of the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon. I loved the he transformed. I loved the sense of humor. I loved his powers, especially the ice slide and the sound it made when it went along. And I actually liked Spider-Man in that cartoon too, because Spider-Man, I always loved the Ditko comics. Like I love picking up those old Marvel Tales reprints. I always liked the Ditko, but I never liked the Spider-Man character except when he was wisecracking, which he does it in the comic books, but not as much as in the TV show. The TV shows, he was always wisecracking. He always had a <laughs> sense of humor. I always liked that sense of humor. Then, of course, Turtles, my gravitate to. And Turtles is because I think I like the art in Turtles because it kind of looked like the kind of art that you had those kids in high school who would draw a comic or draw characters, 
and it kind of looked like that. It was kind of cool to see somebody who had that kind of a style, one, doing a comic book, and two, enjoying such popularity that it was almost like a kind of a precursor that would come up with Image up in the 90s. But I like that kind of, it wasn't as polished as DC and Marvel, but it was still like really exciting storytelling. And I'll get two more in. Icon and Rocket, which comes from a Milestone Media, which was the first Black-owned comic book company in mm-hmm. history. And I like that. I like those two characters because it was a good comic duo whenever you talk about, and just for your audience knows, they were Black characters, Black superheroes. There's always this thing about Black people not being a monolith. And I think no comic book duo, especially no Black comic book duo, represented the idea of Blacks not being a monolith than Icon or Rocket. So Icon is sort of this Black conservative superhero, and Rocket is more this liberal superhero and a female. And basically their whole relationship and friendship reflected that they had these very two opposing views, but they worked really well together and had a very deep friendship. And then, of course, the last one is going to be Captain Marvel, Shazam. That's probably more so than Robin. Probably right up there with Robin is my favorite character because he is literally the expression of the power dynamic for Kyle Books. This idea of it's literally a kid turning into an adult superhero. And on top of that, it's probably the wackiest fantasy world I've ever seen in comic books. That's what you find in Captain Marvel. So those are my favorite characters, the ones that I gravitate to. As you'll notice, a lot of it is kids as superheroes. That's what I enjoy. Well, it's cool, too, because it sort of spans sort of Marvel and DC, but a lot of independent components, too. It took me a long time to get into the independent world. And again, for me, it was probably sort of mid to late high school. And then, I mean, I was a big, I liked the Turtles, too. Got into eventually Valiant Comics and some of the things there, which kind of a cool imprint as well. To go back to Robin for a second, and one of the challenges for a lot of people is when you have writers take over characters, sometimes they go in directions you don't want. (laughs) And so for Robin, Dick Grayson turns into Nightwing eventually, and then you get a different Robin and Jason Todd, and they meet their different ends, which I won't spoil that for anybody who wants to dive into it. But what happens there is you're following and you have a favorite character and they start going off and going into bad ways. Spider-Man had a component where he grew six other arms to be an actual spider and people back in sort of this clone world, I mean, I wasn't sort of alive when that was happening, but people were saying, this is a miserable storyline, change it. And eventually they listened and it happened. How do you deal with that when your favorites are going through a rough creative patch? Until they realize they got a new creative team on the book. And then you come back on it at that point. The guys who were really, really into a book, they'll set a book collab. I'm not guys. The smart ones just walk away. So I remember when the whole, when you had that point where Robin became Nightwing and Jason Todd took over. And Jason Todd was pretty much, I won't say he was universally hated, but he was hated enough <laughs> that for those of you who are familiar with they let the fans vote on it. And, and just to see if DC would do it in some cases, they voted to, yeah, kill Robin. And then I think you just walk away from it for a bit. You find something else to do. You find another book to read. And then when the Tim Drake, that's great. That was a golden age for Robin. I mean, you had a Neil Adams designed Robin costume. He was getting his own limited series. They were all great. Thanks to Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle. And then by the time Tom Grumman came along from the ongoing series, uh, Robin was off to the races. So I think sometimes you just walk away from the character. You walk away from the character, you walk away from the book, and then you come back when they get somebody on there who basically either has a fresher vision or just knows how to do it right. 
So I'm not one of those collectors that have to have the red no matter what. There are some guys that are, and God bless them. And even if mid-story, if you put a bad artist on a mid-story, I'll skip that issue and come back when you put the good artist back on. <laughs> Which DC <laughs> right sure. now was wanting to do. <laughs> it's like, no. But yeah. We talked about how the artists many times make the book. Certainly if a story doesn't measure up, it's not going to save it. But the artist is key because it is a visual medium. And if you can, as I like to say, you can take an average story and put an amazing artist on it and you can get something really good. But if you have a great story and merely okay art, that really hurts. So to that end, who are you, the artists you really like and that you just look at? You talk about sort of the Marv Wolfman components and he in particular, certain the Frank Miller types and there are all sorts of usual suspects, especially on the Marvel side. But who do you like? Well, my favorites are George Perez is definitely number one for me. And that was a lot of it was because my introduction of the new Teen Titans. While I admit he's not great on every character, I just love his style. I love his storytelling. And it's something when I first got introduced to it, he was definitely more at his creative peak on the Titans work. I would say if I'd been introduced to him a little bit earlier, I don't know if I would be as big of a fan of his. But I think he furthers an artist very well. So George Perez is number one on that list. Mike Perobeck, who is probably not as familiar to as many people, but that's because he did some great work on one of the Justice Society of America series, which I think came out like in the early 90s. But his work that was basically a masterpiece, I would encourage anybody to love his work he did on the Batman Adventures comic books, which was based on the TV show, the Batman anime series TV show. The stuff that Mike Perobeck does in that book is terms of storytelling it's just fantastic i think all the time if, if you want to look at what a modern comic book should be in terms of like one-shot stories where you don't have to buy into like a whole event or a six-issue story arc those are what comics should look like for mass audiences so mike paraback i would encourage anybody to check out his work especially on just society of america and batman animated series will eisner will eisner is one of the godfathers of comics if you haven't read comics as sequential art and you claim to be a writer or a artist or a letterer or an anchor or a professional business, you are not. <laughs> you need to read sequential art because nobody does the marriage of words and pictures better than Eisner. His spirit stuff is fantastic. Will Eisner's a big one. Alex Toth. And that more comes from the animation thing, and that's more just in terms of design and storytelling. I haven't seen a lot of Alex Toth's comic book work. Because uh, a lot of that nine times out of ten is out of my price range. But in terms of his design work and even his sensibility in terms of comic books and fantasy stuff, Alex Toff is a big favorite of mine. These three guys, I would say, are not necessarily fan favorites in terms of style. And in some cases, you would say maybe not commercially, but Paul Ryan is a guy that I like a lot. I think probably his best known work was when he did with Tom DeFalco when he had a fantastic forerun. It is my favorite Fantastic Four run. Paul is probably not considered one of the best draftsmen or to have one of the most popular styles, but he's an excellent, excellent, excellent storyteller. Mark Bright, who I'm a huge fan of, he's probably best known for his work at Marvel on G.I. Joe and also at DC, for me anyway, for the Icon series of Milestone. Mark, again, is just a great, great storyteller. Denny O'Neill, who we recently lost, definitely had said at one point that Mark Bright was one of the best storytellers in the business. So his G.I. Joe run, if you ever get a chance to check out the Snake Eyes trilogy, which I don't know the issue numbers for that, but you will see some action sequences in there. It's just like, bar none, he's one of the best 
from storytelling. And then the last guy is Steve um, Epting, who's probably best known for his run with Brubaker on Captain America, especially when they introduced the Winter Soldier. Steve Epting was somebody that I really enjoyed his run on the Avengers prior to that. And I always thought he just needed a better anchor. He just needed a better anchor. And then he got one with Captain America. And then after that, he took off and rightfully so again. Just a really good storyteller. So I, I do like styles. Yeah, I haven't mentioned people like Jim Lee. I haven't mentioned people like John Byrne. I get that. I always pick up their books and I enjoy their work. But it's like, but those guys, I enjoy the storytelling. I mean, honestly, I can't sing any higher praises than Will Eisner. He really opened my eyes as a writer to how you could really tell a story as a writer and really involving the penciler, the inkers, and the colorists, and how you do that. Because he's really pushes, it's words and pictures, guys. It's making words and pictures work to tell the story just beyond, here's a picture, here's somebody saying something. How can you manipulate the form, the medium, to evoke all of these things? So you know this is a creative phrase, especially when it comes to comics or any kind of visual medium. It's show, don't tell. The G.I. Joe trilogy, the Snake Eyes trilogy, Mark Bright, does that include the silent issue? Was he the artist behind that? wasn't the artist for that. I think the artist for that, that was a little bit more early in the run, because I think Mark was the book, like maybe probably from issue 80 going forward, you want to look around there. The silent issue, which is written by Larry Hama, and I believe the artist on that was Steve Leola. Yeah, that sounds that, right. He wasn't the artist for that, but the silent issue is great. That's another great piece of storyteller right there. That's, that's that, one that's in my space that when I grew up and bought that, that transformed the media. And for people who don't know about this, it's basically Snake Eyes goes and he has to parachute in and rescue, I forget, his cover girl or somebody like that. And the whole thing is done. There are no words. And so the art has to carry the story and it's amazing. And then if you were really nerding out on it, the last panel's great because you find out that he and Storm Shadow are related somehow and that, that creates a whole different arc. So, And that's a key. testament to that creative team because Shooter has always said, I went to one of his seminars one time, he wouldn't trust 99% of the industry to tell a story like that. He said maybe a Frank Miller, I think he mentioned Larry Hahn, but he said he wouldn't trust 99% of the industry to tell a story like that. Because as an artist, you really have to be a great storyteller to do something like that. It's a real testament. You're right. That's a great issue. The writer has to sort of give it to the artist, too, and sort of frame it out so that they have something to work with. Left to your own devices, it could end up being two panels, and you're going, oh, well, that was quick. But that one in particular sticks out. So let's talk a little bit about well, animated. Favorite artist, though? My favorite artist. Oh, quick, who's some of you? I'm a big Jim Starenko fan. He has a very unique 60s style that you know it's his when you see it. It's sort of. I'm not quite equating him this way, but you know an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo when you hear it. You know a Jim Starenko book when you see it. And he was a big, he did Captain America. Where everybody really knows him is from Nick Fury and individual issues there. And it's just very stylized. It's very 60s mod. It's got some Salvatore Dali elements to it. I love that. You know, some of the old saws back in Marvel Land, Ditko and Kirby, there are elements to Jack Kirby, which just, defines comic books to me. The Kirby crackle and his use of color and detail are pretty cool. Sort of the Mobius world and sort of more of the heavy metal land. That to me, I mean, they're just so detailed and science fiction oriented. That really activated my imagination a lot of times. I shudder to think that I don't know, that I don't have a lot of good modern examples, but George Perez is a huge one for me, and I believe he did the famous sort of X-Men 
Justice League crossover or X-Men Teen Titans crossover. And that was, a, for me, a famous book. Another great guy, uh, Walt Simonson. Yes. So Walt Simonson, a little bit more abstract. But yeah, that's a great book. He did do the JLA Avengers one. And um, I still don't think the original version of it ever got published. They got like halfway through it before things broke down with Marvel and DC. But yeah, the one that came out was great as well. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of people. Ed Simon said, you bring him up. I almost completely forgot about him. And his Thor run is legendary. And I mean, he really takes that character and turns it into certainly a thunder god. But he's also sort of, he's the one I believe who did the Beta Ray Bill story, which is my favorite Thor story. And it's really cool. So, I mean, those are some of them right there. And it's funny because I think Kupferberg is another good one. He did Vigilante, which was sort of a mid-80s DC book, which I loved. I love the story behind that about a judge who just has lost faith in the system. And then he goes out and sort of takes justice in his own hands. And the art behind that, the guy had a great costume and they had all sorts of good characters and didn't suffer from what I call the DC disease where the heroes are so powerful that it's tough to have a story that's compelling for them. This was more Batman-like and in the streets and on the ground. That's some of me there. (laughs) So let's talk about the business of comic books, because you're starting animated concepts, you're getting it up and running. And first, talk a little bit about what you're trying to do there, and then we can back into some of the problems that it tries to solve and some of the opportunities for young creatives that you're putting out there. I think the big thing with anime concepts is is I think we're really trying to do, I think, the business right. And what I mean by that is to get basically an affordable product out to people that basically has good storytelling in it. Because I think storytelling as a craft has become lost to a, a large degree in the industry at this point. But also from a distribution perspective, just to get it out in front of more people. I cannot tell you how many times when someone comes over to my home or I end up talking with somebody about comics who isn't like really into the hobby at this point, it's always like, they still exist. They still make those. They still do that. It's like most people just have no idea that comic books are still being created and published and sold all over the country and the world. And particularly here, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but particularly here in America, for the people I've had conversations with. It's like people go like, oh, I remember those. It's like that kind of a thing. And for like a lot of young kids, they kind of know what a comic book is. But again, they still just don't really know what it is to buy one or to be in that habit or that hobby of collecting them, reading them, much less collecting them. So I think a lot of what we're trying to do with animated concepts is, one, we are trying to create characters that look like, I would say, the rest of America. (laughs) And I think, two, we're trying to, in terms of the business sense, to get comic books to be more of a mass mainstream kind of a thing like it used to be, to be in more kids' hands who hopefully were turning into adults that would love to be a part of that hobby. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, to tell some really great stories, to tell some stories that I think people haven't heard before, haven't seen before. I think ultimately that's what we're trying to do at Animated Concepts. Because I think right now, especially when you talk about like Marvel and DC, it, it always feels like the comic books industry that we have sort of an inferiority complex. And I kind of had to leave that behind after, well, I never even thought about that way, but I definitely chucked that to the side and for not only myself, but anyone else, when the first Avengers movie came out. What I always remember is there's a scene in the movie, I may spoil this for some, where they're doing the big battle at the end of the movie and Captain America looks at the Incredible Hulk and says, Hulk smash. 
and they drop that line in the movie like we're all supposed to know what that means. <laughs> and it's like I stood up, I applauded, and I said, my job as a comic book ambassador was done. I was like, you have arrived. I have done my bit. You are now officially mainstream. And that's the thing is that Marvel with their film series, the Marvel, the cinematic universe, they have taken all these things that you and I have enjoyed for all these years. And it's now it's a part of Americana. It was always part of Americana before. But now in a real way, it's just mainstream in a way that cannot be denied. But it only became mainstream because of these four color floppies, these four color books, these four color stories. So my thing is, I think in a lot of ways, a concept is to kind of bring comic books back into their rightful place, which I think is right alongside everything else that's in the mainstream. So that's really, I think, and to do it in a way that now is reflective of the entire audience, as opposed to what's now becoming a special, I think, uh, the heart of it. That's great. And I tell people you know, when I talk about comic books and they go, oh, yeah, what's this, that or the other thing? I go, look, you've got two multi, multi-billion dollar film industries that are based on it completely. And then you could also probably drop Star Wars in there, too. But Marvel, DC, Star Wars, Harry Potter, they started from somewhere. And if you don't have a lot of different sort of methods or vehicles for people to publish and get those ideas out there, it's tough to be able to harvest something where you haven't planted any seeds. And exactly. it's definitely, it's even harder to sort of develop, I would call it good IP from a huge corporate platform. I think it gets very dollar oriented, risk reward, all of those things come into play and it becomes creativity by committee oftentimes. And that's when the stories get kind of soft and lame. And I like the idea of having smaller, more independent publishers who are taking risks and see a vision, even if it's not fully formed yet, and letting it grow. And that's how you get maybe a Tony Stark story arc that didn't exist. Someone who's willing to really go for it in an independent way and not have to worry about sort of a corporate bean counter saying, well, we're not selling enough here. Let me say, you have to have the business right because doing this for free doesn't work either. But having the smaller shops, having more stories reflective of society, getting more creativity out there, I think that's going to work better ultimately. So I'm way on board. Yeah, because it's like only we were talking before about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's like, whoever thought that would have become the global, evergreen, multinational character brand that it is today would almost be unheard of. But it's simply that with anime concerts, when I've talked to people about the company, they're like, well, what kind of things you're going to publish? I said, look, I'm going to publish the stuff that I like. But I also realize as a publisher, if everything that I'm putting out is something that I like personally, that's to my sensibility, then I'm leaving money on the table somewhere else. I'm leaving money on the table. Everything can't be something that I like because there are things out there that have an audience for it that if I want to make some money and it does deserve to have a life, I have to be willing to take a risk and publish that. Like for one thing, just anecdotally to a lot of younger kids, especially um, black kids who are into comics or whatever, there's a huge audience out there for anime. If not manga, anime, they gobble that stuff up. There's some anime that I like. I'm big on Dragon Ball Z, Vision of Esclone. I like Berserk and Fist of the North Star, stuff like that. But the thing is, is that there's a huge audience for that. So yeah, at some point on the anime concepts docket, we are going to have something that is anime, manga influence because you want to, for, the, for another reason, just from a business sense, why not make money? <laughs> but at the same time, you want to give a platform to those kind of creators to tell those stories. 
because people want to hear those stories. I think you're exactly right. When you get to now, I think at Marvel and DC, people talk about the all new, all different Marvel, where it just became this very corporate driven directive that turned a lot of people off to the whole Marvel line at one point. That's kind of, like you said, it's creativity by committee. And there is a place for the creativity by committee thing, but really that's not typically where most good ideas start. Most good ideas from basically someone or a team having a very unique creative vision. It's just like, if you look at all the great stories, there's usually a writer and a few artists who are like, we really want to tell this kind of a book. And there's a passion to it, a uniqueness and originality to it. It translates into big bucks and more mainstream media like movies, television, and so on and so forth. I mean, when you talk about Iron Man, for instance, Tony Stark, the Iron Man that ended up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that was the Tony Stark from the Armor War storyline, for those who remember, which was drawn by one of my favorite artists, Mark Bright, and I forget who the writer was. I want to say David Michelin, but it's like, that's the basis for the Tony Stark character in the MCU. That's exactly where they got it from. And it was a great take, and they just built on it to the point where they made it more of a Spider-Man character with that same influence by giving him the great power, great responsibility aspect to it too. So that Iron Man film character that we've all fallen in love and followed for the last 10 years may not have been possible if not for that creative team on Armor Wars. That's how this business works. Well, and, and the other part too is you know, talk about how the movie world is sort of the personification of these characters that have these very complex, difficult backstories. I mean, for people who don't know, in the book, way back when, Tony Stark has a gigantic problem with alcohol and he loses his company. They only allude to that briefly in the movies, but the people who grew up and read those books, they know and feel that. And I think that creates an interesting nuance within the cinematic universe that maybe the mainstream fan doesn't quite appreciate, but it does provide a little bit of fanboy service without necessarily spoiling the broth for newer people who are discovering that type of thing. Absolutely. And I think one thing for me was I didn't realize until I got a little bit more hip to the whole entertainment business, I didn't realize how much these movies and televisions that I thought were original creations of the people who produced them, where so much of it was drawn from books. <laughs> like Almost all of it. If it wasn't a book, it's a book or play where all of these franchises, these multimedia franchises come from. So it's like when people say like books are dead or comic books are dead and stuff like that, it's like, no. You want to keep them around because basically 99% of your ideas are directly lifted <laughs> exactly <laughs> from these existing works. So I'm like, hey, I don't know about that. It's like, I don't think I've seen anything in the last 10 years that wasn't a reboot of something that was already a translation or an adaptation of something that came from a book or a play. But it's like, that's how the creative business works. I mean, Hollywood always at a certain extent, because I don't want to diss it too much because I need to make money there someday. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood, it's like, I don't knock it. But it's like, I think these works, these printed works, these printed gold mines, um, more of a place in people's homes and lives than I think they do right now. So, yeah, sometimes I think they concepts and maybe that's a little bit of foolishness on my part is to kind of get the business and get the medium, if you will, and the product, if you will, to the point where it gets the respect that it deserves. Because we've all been the beneficiaries of it, imagination wise. Without a doubt. So you've got kind of a niche and a slot figured out, I think, with your company. When you're looking at the comic book industry as a whole, and this is probably, we could go into this for three hours, but you've got Marvel and DC. They're the big two. And then you have 
sort of a smattering of other books. Many, there's the image with the sort of creative owned, that type of business structure. Maybe take us through what the industry looks like right now and why in many ways it's so hard for new stories to break in. Depending on who you talk to, <laughs> some of it seems to be a lot about personal politics and cliques. I want to say probably there's a little bit of an old boys network if you will, that happens in comics. So it really is a lot of times is when you have to go to cons and stuff like that. You really have to get in with the right editor or the right creator or something like that in order to break into the industry. But I think what it is is that when you have Marvel and DC, a lot of this happened with, in the 90s, when it was kind of, everything in the comics industry was kind of blowing up, Marvel overextended themselves. So they got themselves into a little situation where they found themselves looking at, they had to file bankruptcy and kind of rebuild. I think one of the things, there were two things that came out of the 90s that were good. So one was Image Comics, where basically you had this outlet now where anybody who had an idea and could at least get the work together could basically get the original idea published. The bad thing that I think kind of came out of it with Marvel was, was that Marvel changed its business model to going from comic book publishing being profitable and being something that's viable on its own to comic books almost being like a loss leader that as long as they did it, they could always mine that stuff for IP that would then benefit them in terms of merchandising and licensing. I mean, literally, the business model became is that you wanted to get these characters into the movies so that the movies would be the billboard presentation to the whole world, and then you could license and merchandise everything you want off of it. And the comics kind of became like an R&D kind of aspect of the business that would lead into that, but it was very corporate-controlled. You have people who initially get some of their very creative visions out, so I don't want to down that. There have been very excellent stories that have come out in the last 10 to 20 years, but I think the focus has been less on things being creative as opposed to, can I exploit this? And so if I think this is an IP that I want to introduce into the marketplace, now we're going to do a limited series based on this IP as opposed to a creator saying, I got this really cool story to tell with these characters, so I'm going to do that. I mean, when you look at image, you see a lot of that going on there. You see a lot of creativity going on there. But I wouldn't say that you would see a lot of stuff coming out of image that you could say would be bankable or marketable in terms of multimedia franchises. And I say that not talking about The Walking Dead, because we all know The Walking Dead <laughs> came out of image, one of the biggest things on the planet. And we could talk about why I believe that to be the case. But there was just a lot of contraction. There's a lot of pullback after the 90s. And I think the aversion to risk just exponentially multiplied. We had a market where basically it looked like we were going to take over the world. And because on the business end of things, people didn't take care, weren't mindful of the customers in terms of oversaturating the market with gimmick products and things like that. And we're going to sell you the same book with five different covers on it and all this other nonsense. And they indulged in a, to a certain extent, a speculative market that basically was there for all the wrong reasons. And then when it was all said and done, the market just contracted in such a way that I don't think Marvel and DC were just interested in going to recapture those readers. It's like those of us who stuck around, stuck around. But everybody else was like, okay, that was fun. Let's move on to something else. But I just think there's a lot of aversion to risk. I think it's important for people who don't sort of get into comic books or are only sort of hearing about it for the first time here, the enormous amount of work that goes into creating one issue. And I was trying to tell someone we talked before about, I co-wrote a comic book, which is basically in size about four issues, 
and it took the artist and this was fairly efficiently done it took him almost a year to do it and then we had to find a publisher and get it printed and all that i mean it's a long time and i also tell people that there's sort of there's a weird asymmetry between the writing of a comic book which i'd say in many ways takes a lot of time it's very important you have to be structured and smart about it and it has to have a beginning and an end and be compelling and that but it's almost one-eighth the work that an artist has to put in because they have to really they have to take the story help to translate it into a vision and that's where you talk about the good collaboration between a writer and an artist that makes that process really efficient and when it isn't efficient it blows it's not like you just sort of dream these things up and they happen it can take a couple of years of not very well compensated work in order to get something to look professional and to be compelling. And even then you have a very low likelihood of financial success upon seeing it. And that's where it's hard. Yeah, I think the industry has changed some in that regard. And I think sometimes with that, that's for the worst, because there used to be a saying in the business that first you get fast then you get good. And I think what that speaks to is, is that you have to learn to craft first, because if you know why you're doing what you're doing, then you should be able to get to those. Records. So a lot of times it's that you have a lot of people who really don't understand the craft of the business. So if you go back to like the guys who were the Eisners and the Jack Kirby's and along those lines, it's like a lot of those guys worked at, especially Eisner, they worked at like Basie Studios where they would just crank out a bunch of work for different comic book publishers so they can get their work out to the newsstands. And so... They learned in a way how to tell stories really well under some high pressure deadlines and so on and so forth. That doesn't take away from the labor intensive nature of it, because believe me, comic book work, whether you're writing or inking or coloring or drawing, penciling, it is labor intensive. But the thing is, I think sometimes that that collaboration piece or even when you're individually working, because a lot of people don't understand the craft of it, there's a big learning curve to it. It's like a huge learning curve to it. But it gets difficult. Even some of the great artists, and I remember having some of these experiences when I was working at Milestone in the editorial department. Sometimes it's like my brother would ask me why certain artists got work and certain others didn't. And he was particularly asking about Arthur Adams, who you're probably familiar with. And I told him, I said, with all due respect, when it comes to comic books, I got to put something out every 30 days. You can have the best draftsman in the world, the guy with the hottest style, but if he can't get something out every 30 days, it's kind of like, bro, I can't use you. It's a lot of factors. I like a word that my wife uses called multifactorial. <laughs> it's definitely multifactorial, but I think what a lot of it is, is that when it comes to comics, things have become so, cannot turn this into a movie or something like that, that certain things don't get approved. Whereas opposes to it, the thing should be, okay, can I break even on this project or make some money? And sometimes you just have to take that risk. And I think what's coming down to a lot of people, I think, starting to realize in the industry is that we need better editors in the industry than we have right now. From what I'm hearing from a lot of people who are in the industry right now, it's like a lot of the editors are just kind of like they're paper pushers. They just make sure that this comes in, that this person's on schedule, this, this, this and that. But there's nothing where they're kind of making the creators better because a real good editor should be someone who almost in a sense knows everything about the craft better than the creative team, but is also willing to push the creative team to the point where it's like, look, this is what you're trying to do. And I don't think this works right here. It should be a good sounding board. It's like, well, if you do this right here with this character, when you get to this point in the story, is that going to ring true with this back here? 
being able to tell the creative team what a three-act story structure is, or even understanding in a book that, okay, because you're going to do your big reveal here, on this part of the book right here, we have to put an ad here. So maybe you want to move your pages around so your reveal doesn't hit here as opposed to over there. I don't get a sense when I'm reading the books today that the creators have that sense of telling a story in this particular format, in this particular medium. And I think it really, it's so many things, but I think it all goes back to this sort of risk averse inferiority thing. It's like, there's no respect for the amount of time and effort that goes into doing these things. There's no real effort to learn the craft of it to the point where if you did learn it, it should be faster for you. Like when Kirby started in the 60s, what people don't realize is he had been working on a number of books since the 30s and the 40s. He had 30 years of learning the business, learning his craft before he could do what he did at Marvel. And I don't think you have to spend 30, 40 years doing that. I just think Marvel was something where for both him and Stan Lee, it was like, okay, this is what we can do. And here we are in the spotlight and this is the best that we can put out. I just think that when you look at Dan and Jack as an example, you look at all the genres they worked in and all the output that they had. It's like at a certain point, you just kind of, you can sit down and get a script and say, okay, I know what to do with this and knock it out in a week. As I like to tell people, it takes a long time to be an overnight success. And the accumulated experience of all that, as you say, you learn to be fast before you're good. Not only on that front, but you also know what you like. And and if you're able to kind of make magic by having someone with a fairly shared vision, it hockey sticks up. And it's like you're saying, so that's the thing with Stan Lee. Definitely all of the artists, Don Heck, Jack Kirby, I'm trying to think of many as I can, John Romita, all those guys. A lot of what Stan Lee did, whether you believe it's hype or it's actual, is that he picked guys he knew were good storytellers. So he picked guys that he knew that if he gave them basically the Marvel way of doing it, you give them a plot synopsis, they're going to take that one page that he writes down and basically break it out into a 22-page book and have a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. But those are guys that he knew that were great storytellers. So he's old, some of them weren't great draftsmen. I was never a big Don Heck fan. I just wasn't. I wasn't a Don Heck fan. But Don Heck is a good storyteller. <laughs> There's two ways about it. Steve Ditko, I love Steve Ditko stuff, don't get me wrong. I can see for some other people why he wouldn't be his cup of tea. But it's like some of the stuff that Steve Ditko does in Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, it's like, are you kidding me? These were guys who all who had been seasoned up until that point where when they got to Marvel, they were just operating at their peak creative output. Like some people will tell you, Steve Ditko should have just never left Spider-Man. It's just like, <laughs> it's just that that's, just, that's what it was. So I think sometimes when you have the independent market, there are some guys who for years try to get into Marvel and DC. I use Mike Allred as an example. Mike Allred was the creator of Madman, which is a very popular independent comic book. And he had been trying to get work at Vertigo for years. But Karen Berger, who was the editor at Vertigo, just wouldn't let him in the door. She just said, you're not ready yet. You're not good enough. And Karen Berger is a damn good editor. So it was not, he wasn't good enough. But he was determined, okay, I'm going to keep working on this until I get this and that. And eventually he got good enough that I believe he did get some stories at Vertigo. And he also ended up working at Marvel and getting some stuff too. And you can tell the difference in terms of his storytelling, why he was getting those assignments. Honestly, Frazier, I think if I was to say why things are the way that they are now, it's just, I think we have a lot of market leaders, but not industry leaders. I've been serving as a regular guest and I'm a critical channel on YouTube. That was one of the questions that came up in terms of like, why Marvel and DC, why they, they weren't basically getting the product out in front of more people. And so this was the answer they came up with. And basically it says, because everybody is waiting for somebody else to do it. 
everybody's waiting for somebody else to do what apparently seems to be obvious. Because we were having this conversation in the panel. I'm like, okay, look, guys, if you as a bunch of retailers are saying this is what needs to happen to fix the industry, I'm somebody who hasn't worked professionally in the industry in almost 20 years can figure this out. If the kid on the corner can figure out what to do to fix this thing, why aren't Marvel and DC doing it? And the answer was, is because everybody else is waiting for somebody else to do, which means is that they're risk averse. They're just risk averse at this point. I could tell you in five minutes, this is what you need to do to do that, to basically get more people on board. But then their thing is going to be, well, I got to spend X amount of money to do that. I don't know what the return on investment is going to do that. And da, 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 da. it's just this long laundry list. So I tell people all the time, you give me $3 million, I'd spend it trying to prove all my theories out, period. But I ain't got $3 million. So that means that's what Marvel and DC <laughs> do it because I know you got the money to do it. But honestly, everybody in the industry is waiting for somebody else to test it out first. So that means it falls on companies like Animated Concepts, companies like Marcosia, companies like them to, without the capital necessarily, and sometimes the brand recognition, to go out there and show, hey, you can grow the market this way. And even then, that presumes that Marvel and DC are paying attention to what you're doing. So it's a sad commentary that as much as their properties have demonstrated in the mainstream how well-loved they are, well-known they are. My girls know, they haven't picked up a DC comic in their life, but they know all the DC characters, that these two companies are afraid to just put out a affordable product in as wide a distribution channel as possible and just go a year where you might lose some money to build up an audience that three years from now, you're raking in a dough. It's baffling to me. Well, it seems like certainly Marvel and DC owned by big conglomerates. It almost feels like pharmaceutical companies. They wait for the little guy to come up with the new drug and then they snap them up for relative cheap. Maybe that's where animated concepts sort of steps in is that if you're the ones developing the new things and maybe that's just how it's going to work going forward. But to use that example, there are two guys, one in animation and one in comics who have made the same argument. So in animation, it was Ralph Boschke. So those of you who don't know Ralph Boschke, Boschke is a well-known, well-beloved, basically independent animator who's in a lot of corporate work. But he's really mostly known for the feature film, probably Cool World. And he's known for like that Mighty Mouse to do adventure series that was on CBS for a while and got canceled for very controversial reasons. But Ralph Boschke said, look, all of this stuff can be done. And on a budget, that is, you don't have to go through these big guys in order to get it done. You just have to have the will. You just have to have the will to do it, to get your little pennies together put your best foot forward and get it in front of people and just make it work. Probably the ultimate expression of what Ralph Boschke is talking about is Tyler Perry, whom if I don't know how much of your audience is familiar with him, but Tyler Perry started out in what is known, and I'm going to say the Black entertainment community, as the Chitlin Circuit, doing these little stage plays. He basically did all the distribution himself. And he just put one thing together after another thing together, got some money together, put the motion picture, the films he did, went from the film to the TV series. And he's built this multimedia empire where basically now in Atlanta, Georgia, he has his version of the Skywalker Ranch and Desilu Studios. That's what he has. And he did that. The other guy in comics who was saying this was Robert Kirkman. He got a lot of flack work because people felt he was selling independent creators a pie-in-the-sky idea that, well, not everybody's The Walking Dead. He's like, well, you're damn straight, not everybody's The Walking Dead. Remember, Kirkman had a bunch of failures, too, before The Walking Dead. That's it right. wasn't like everything he put out was a major hit. And I would say, if you listen to when Kirkman talks about Walking Dead, 
I would attribute much of the success of The Walking Dead is definitely to the concept, definitely to the concept of the zombies and all that. But what Kirkman said he did was that when he did The Walking Dead, he said, I wrote The Walking Dead as if these were going to be the only six issues that ever got published. Because that's what happened with all the other series that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> about six issues and they I crammed as much storyline as I could into those six issues because I was just like, nothing else, I get it out there and I'm done. And I think it was because of every, because if you've read Walking Dead for six years, you're like, oh man, this is like so much story and everything oh, yeah. else, which I think caught the eyes of producers. And it's like, he had put so much in, it's almost like, and that's what I mean about the getting fast, getting good. And like, as you said, that there's a long story to being an overnight success is that he had to learn all those things along the way. And then of course, there's always that great thing called timing that comes along that resulted in the success of The Walking Dead is. But it's like at this point, with the technology that we have in terms of printing and doing all these things, really the only barrier for more independence doing what they're doing is really capital. It's really just having the money to do it because it is a labor-intensive business and it is a capital-intensive business. That's why we at MA Concepts, we really are taking the mini-comics approach because we're like, we know we got limited funds that we're working with. We're going to get those ideas out there in printed form, copyrighted and all that, so that people can at least say, Yo, this is what we're thinking about. <laughs> this is what we think we can tell a bunch of stories off of. And I think Marvel and DC, they're just in a better position to do it. But it's just like you said, it's like a pharmaceutical company. You're not going to put up the R&D money to do that. You're going to see what somebody else is doing. And then once they've kind of proved it out like halfway, then you'll swoop in and do it the rest of the way. Because most entrepreneurs, despite their personal bios and stories, are not risk takers. They are educated betters. That's what they do. They take educated risk. That's right. They take calculated, but they're not risk takers. And I understand that to a certain extent, but it's like there's a certain point you got to look at a story and look at a drawer and say, you know what? I'm in love with that. You have to see the stories. You have to, like I tell somebody, there was one guy I'm trying to get on board now. I said, when I first saw a drawing of his character, I said, I can see the cosplay. I can see the little girl dressing up like that character. I can see the grown woman dressing up like that character. If you're not operating from that point of view, I think that's what leads to the kind of industry that we have right now. It just does. Certainly, it feels like at the suit level, I mean, there is a real thing, career risk, where if you allocate money towards something that fails and you lose your job, and there just aren't that many jobs out there in this space, especially at the corporate level, you're going to think twice, you're going to think five times before pushing along on that front. So one thing that always sort of struck me is you have sort of the printed comic book form, you have movie form. And in between, in many ways, is the animation form. Is that something you're looking at, too, in terms of distribution? And I know it's expensive to do, and it takes a small army to make a decent animated series. How does that fit into your plans? That's definitely a future thing. So the thing is, is that, again, much like with comics, I think comics, in terms of barriers to entry, uh, comics is the easiest thing to capitalize or to fund, if you will, to get your ideas in at least in a concrete form. Animation requires a lot more money <laughs> than anything. But that's definitely, for us, what we're looking to do is we want to do basic comic book publishing, animation production, and video game publishing. Those will be the three areas of business that we want to be involved with. But that's definitely a lot further down the line, unless we make turtle money on the comics. If we make turtle money in the comics, we're off to the races. <laughs> turtle money. That's... But we get that kind of... Yeah, that's right. It's turtle money. It's like... In wrestling, you call it stink money, and in comics, it's turtle money. Maybe Batman money if you went back, but it's definitely turtle money. Turtle money. That's great. I'm using that from now on. Well, no. You, Copyright you target. 
That's the dream. The dream is, is that you get something. Because if you look at the way Eastman and Laird handled the whole Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing, they handled it as if their property was worth it. It was valuable. If you ever get a chance to check out the definitive history of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you listen to them talk about when, I forget the name, the, the gentleman's last name, but the gentleman from Surge Licensing who approached them about licensing the Turtle IP, they didn't act like he was doing them a favor. They acted like they were doing him a favor. Because that's what it is. And because they did that, I think they had an amount of creative control over it that they were able to get out there in some ways a property or representations of their property that stayed true to what they brought to the table. And that's kind of like what I tell a lot of young creatives now. I was like, look, I get it. They're going to throw fifty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars at you to buy your IP and do whatever it is they're going to do with it. And I think at a certain point you have to ask yourself, the first question you ask yourself, well, if they're giving you a hundred grand, then how much do you think they're going to make? <laughs> after they take all your rights for your idea. But at some point, you have to believe in your idea enough to say, no, this is what I want to do. I have ideas for how we get to that animation thing, but at the end of the day, it always comes down to that good friend money, also known as cheddar, also known as scratch. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> without money, and this is for all you entrepreneurs out there, and some will tell you otherwise, but most of them are lying. Until you have the money in some way to significantly contribute or fund your business, Honestly, you just got an idea. There are very few businesses where, unless you just got a bunch of really groovy friends who really do a lot of stuff for you for free, funding is everything. And I understand how, how some independents operate, especially with Image. I mean, Image is able to get the content that it gets because basically they put all the production costs on the creative teams. And then from what I understand now, I think you almost don't get paid for the first book until the trade paperback or something comes out. So there's a lot of risk involved with that, which is why, rightfully so, anybody who's publishing through Image should control 100% of the IP. <laughs> you didn't put nothing up. If you're compromising, compromise on the things that are useful. But going through it in my little world, that's something I was like, look, my co-writer and I, it's like, look, we have to maintain as much control over the equity behind this as we absolutely have to, as we can. And we'll see how it turns out. As you said, the big thing is also to just create and create and create and keep it going. You don't know what the success is going to be. I look back at Valiant Comics, and they've had a bunch of good ones. Bloodshot's now a movie, but their biggest property is called Faith, which is about a preteen sort of little mildly overweight girl with telekinetic powers and things like that. And that's their biggest seller by far. And if you were to sort of look at that from 30,000 feet, you wouldn't put your chips there. If success were, if the formula were easy, everyone would do it. And you just never know what's going to catch fire. And to use Faith as an example, because I don't want to misrepresent too much, because Faith was part of the team, I think it was Harbinger, when Valiant first came out. So at least they knew that was a risk, putting basically an overweight girl as a superhero on the team. And then when they saw that she had at least a fan base, the risk comes in. We say, okay, well, let's see if she can fly a solo act. And then do that. It becomes a big thing. But he would have value. Value when it came out, which was, I think, the more professional version of Image <laughs> and had these characters. But again, going back to like the risk aversion part of it, the initial line of those characters, most of them, I would say 80% of them were old gold key characters. So it was already existing characters that were proven out in some way to be commercially viable. And they just did a modern interpretation of it. But of course, they added in characters like Bloodshot and Rye and Harbinger, so they don't act like value wasn't creative or willing to be creative in some instances. 
But it's like, that's how so much of the comic business works. It is very trend driven. And it's very like, okay, I mean, other than maybe the first few years of the, once they went from reprinting, and even then they were reprinting newspaper strips as comic books. So again, taking something that was existing and making a little money off of it. But definitely when the first person stepped out and said, well, let's do an original strip as opposed to repackaging Popeye strips into the comic books. Let's see what happens with that. It's like, somebody's got to do it. Somebody has to have the, you know what, the cojones to do it. And you're right. Something like Faith, that's not something that's going to get a green light at Marvel and DC right away. It's just not. Or even if it did do well, it'd still be like another five years before they work up the courage and they would have to say, oh, well, Valiant did an overweight character. So let's see who we got in ours that's overweight. <laughs> we'll roll that one out. That's basically how it works. It's just like, you're right, Frazier. It's like that willing to take a creative risk. That's what I'm really hoping to do at Animated Concepts in a real way. It's like, there's some ideas, and I'll throw one out there. It's like Christian superheroes. It's like, oh my God, that's been done so many times. It's been done so terrible and so poorly. I think we got a good take on it. And I think it's going to be really entertaining. And, and I thank Todd McFarlane for giving me the little insight that I think makes it work. But it's like, you just got to do these things. And that's why for me, that's why I like the mini comic format that we're going to try to animate concepts. Because I think it's something like, it's, for lack of a better word, it's cheap enough, it's fast enough, it's simple enough. Boom, you get it out there. And people will get a taste of what it is, and they'll either like it or they won't like it, and you can tweak it from there. But I think if there was more stuff like that, just just get it out there, as opposed to being these, hey, just get it out there. Because you can always tell more stories after the fact, and you would think you would see a lot more of that with digital, where it's just like, boom, 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 just get it out there and see what clicks, and then if it does well, okay, do another story like that. I don't think there's a real space for that right now. So yeah, it's like the old DC Showcase Presents. Where are those? You could do that when you can get them out there and sell it. But because of the way the, the current business environment is right now, we even now with the current situation where everything's shutting down, we are going to be losing retailers as a result of it. Some people are projecting anywhere from 20 to 25 percent retailers are going to go away after this. It's just they have to get these books out in front of more people. They got to get more people involved with it so they can take these risks. Something's got to give. Really, really cool. So before we sign off here, how do we keep track of animated concepts? I'm going to post some of the interviews you've done on critical thinking, and you sent over some of your favorite covers, which are awesome. And I'm going to put those up too. People can get a look at what that looks like. But how do we keep track of what you're up to and when you launch and that type of thing? Well, I'm telling everyone at this point is info, I-N-F-O, at animatedconcepts.biz. That is our official email address. If you are interested in keeping up with us, just drop a line with your email address to just send an email to there. I will put you on the list. We are planning on, after the focus groups in July, at least getting a landing page up, getting a website up live with a landing page. We will start taking on email subscribers. So if you send me an email at info at animatedconcepts.biz, I'll put you on that list. So that way, when we start to do updates or start to do new things for the company, I can send something out to you to let you know, hey, check out www.animatedconcepts.biz when that goes live. And then we'll get you in a loop because we want to get as many people on an email subscriber list as we possibly can to keep people in touch with us. But if you want to know anything about Animated Concepts, just drop me and send me an email, info at animatedconcepts.biz, and I'll keep you in a loop. That's the best way to get in touch with me. If you're a creative person who's looking to do some work, if you're just somebody who's just interested in what's going on, 
if you're an investor who would be interested in investing, <laughs> info at animatedconcepts.biz. That's Excellent. the best way to do it. <laughs> Especially you investors out there. Yeah, that's right. You don't get it if you don't ask. That's right. Javane, this has been really cool. This is a lot of fun. And it's fun to talk to somebody who you know so much more about the space that I always felt like I knew something about it. And it's fun to learn. So I'm excited for your company and I'm hoping for a ton of success. And thank you very much for being on. Thank you for having me on, Frazier. And I hope we can do this again real soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.